Thank you, musicians. Thank you for your labor of love, very much like Hebrews 6, 10 through 12. For those of you who are wondering, did he forget this scripture reading? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is, I intended to wrap that together, join it with the sermon itself. But to be honest, it was probably a moment of ADHD, forgetfulness, something like that. I'm not sure. Just two things before we get to that. I want to ask you, so Cheryl and I will be, um, we'll be hosting the Abwao family for six weeks in our home starting Monday, starting tomorrow. And it would be really awesome if some of you, maybe one family a week, and we could coordinate this through Josh Marie, through us, would say, hey, we'll have them over. And uh, we're going to try to go out on a date and leave the house to them once a week. But maybe you could have them and get to know them. Absolutely lovely family. Four children, 15. Mitch is 15, a girl. Then James, 12. Um, Window is 10, girl. And then little Eliana Quay is three and a half, almost four. So that would be a very practical way to live out Romans 12, that type of hospitality as well as anyone that's new and part of our church. But also, a second thing that I didn't want to forget to do is in the month of August, we're going to start, try to have a couple of men's groups going, guys night, but also do it in the morning, early, uh, twice a month, 20 chapters, 10 months, um, August through May, really a seminal work by R. Kent Hughes, Disciplines, of a godly man. You'll hear more about this this week and see that in the bulletin. But just a note, uh, men, um, really encourage you, 20 times, 20 chapters, twice a month with other men praying together, learning together, uh, what I think is an absolute excellent work by a first-rate pastor can use. Turn with me, if you will, to page 78. In your ESV, or in, yeah, especially like the Bible in front of you there, in the chair in front of you, Exodus 38, page 78. And Aaron, I'm going to work my way through this just a little bit. Pretty simple. I want this in, in, in effect. These two chapters are really a continuation of what began in chapter 36, verse 8. And that is a sense of it going from inside out with the furnishings within the most holy place, that is, right, within the tent of meeting, and you have the ark the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony with the mercy seat on top, chapter 37, and then the table that goes on the north side of the holy place, that is, on the east side of the veil, and then the lampstand on the south side there, the altar of incense, which providentially, as Pastor Jamie will preach tonight from Hebrews 9, the first 15 verses, Honestly, we did not coordinate this. This was providential. 
It was not planned, but it was in a sense, but not just by the two of us, that those first five, six, seven verses of Hebrews 9 correspond perfectly with where we're at in these last few chapters of the book of Exodus. And there, then, the altar of incense, it's difficult at times to know where exactly the altar of incense was located, but by Hebrews 9, it appears it's inside the veil so that the altar of incense, the ark with the mercy seat on top, are the only two things, or you might say three things, two stacked within the most holy place. And then you'll notice from there we come to our text this morning And I want you to note that there's these two things in the court, what we call, you might say courtyard, the court, the altar of burnt offering, the bronze basin. You see that, first eight verses of chapter 38. And then the construction of the court. And in particular, what's in view here is that perimeter, um, of the court, all right? And you'll notice he made the altar, verse 1. He made the basin, verse 8. He made the court, verse 9. And then you'll notice, beginning in verse 21, this heading in the ESV materials for the tabernacle. And there is a, in effect, it's like a manifest or a bill of materials with some summary quantities of what was given uh, for all this fabrication, for all this construction. No small deal because for many, many years and many, many miles, it would be transported uh, probably 500 years-ish, all right, 500 years-ish until the completion of the temple in Solomon's reign And that's what's addressed there in verses 21 to the end of chapter 38. Chapter 39, you see that title, Making the Priestly Garments. And I'd like to read verse 1 and then come down to verse 30. And we'll read verse 1 and then I'll read 30 through the end of the chapter. We read this from the blue of chapter 39, verse 1. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns. They made, I want you to notice now, there is this alternating between he made and they made. He made and they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then, of course, from verse 2 all the way down through 29, he delineates the making of these different things, right? The ephod, the breastpiece, verse 8, the robe, 22, coats, 27, turban, and 28. Even fancy underwear, what you would say undergarments there at the end of 28, if you want to call it that, all right? Verse 29, the sash, and then, 20, and then we come to verse 30. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And they tied it to a cord of blue 
to fasten it on the turban above as the Lord had commanded Moses, right? And so the highest thing of the most precious metal, pure gold, has this inscription, holy to the Lord. That's what Aaron would have in his priestly activity. That's what you would see. It would be conspicuous, obvious. Verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. I'm going to pause there. Kids, if you've been camping and with your tent, your parents have these cords that go out to a peg to basically keep your tent from collapsing or becoming this very unstable parallelogram that then becomes a pancake, right? First it's a cube, then it's a parallelogram, and then you're smushed flat. That's the point of the cords and the pegs, all right? These are more than words on a page. These are when you think of tabernacle and even when John says in John 1 that the Son of God came and tabernacled among us, it's that he literally pitched his tent. Jesus camped among us, among humanity. But I digress. Verse 41. The finely worked garments... In this list, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work. Here it is. And behold, they had done it. He made, they made. He made, they made. They had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Let's pause just for a moment and go to the Lord one more time. Father, if we're honest, because all of this is in seed form, We are so grateful that we have the whole of your word that we better understand what the type and the shadow and the picture 
and the pattern point to in its fulfillment. In your son, that final word, so we thank you for him and we pray that you would capture our hearts with affection for him this morning as we're in your word. We ask this for Christ's sake, amen. All of the Bible is about God, and the Bible points to and ends at Jesus Christ. Some of you can think of the terminal on your battery. Well, Jesus is the terminating point, the fulfillment, the end, the ultimate to which all the Scripture points. It's why in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, he takes the law and the prophets knowing that they point to him. And there's nothing and no one further than the living, resurrected, and ascended Christ. No one steps up and says, when you, like when you think a conversation is over and someone says, and one more thing, but it's minor, and they drone on for 10 minutes. Have you ever had that experience? It is Paul that says in Romans eleven thirty three, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Paul's doxological conclusion at the end of that doctrinal portion of his magnum opus of the book of Romans, it's that aha punctuation that orders everything or gives order to everything in our universe and makes it just right in the sun. And that is the order for all chaos, the summary of how God really is the subject of the Bible, and therefore, God, kids, listen to this, the subject of your life in the pursuit of your life must be God himself. So need I add, it's important that we remind ourselves of these truths. You and I were made to worship God. We were made to worship God. Better you and I are remade to worship God in the face of Jesus Christ because of Jesus whom Paul says to Timothy, it's he, Jesus, who holds this exclusive distinction as Christ Jesus, as the one mediator between God and man. There is no other. Some of you remember the movie 127 Hours where the guy gets stuck in a slot canyon and has to remove his arm. Anyone remember that movie? So I want to give you an imagery of a slot canyon, not a removed arm, but just for a moment, okay? Don't miss the point. There's no other mediator between God and man. God has slot canyoned humanity to find life and meaning and hope in that one mediator. There's no other space. And we are blessedly stuck in Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. It's why Dr. John MacArthur writes that the glory of God, in fact, is the end of the good word of Jesus. This is what he says. Nothing in this vast universe of wonders is greater or more sublime than the glory of God. Moreover, God's glory is the ultimate reason for everything that exists. Kids, I want to ask you a question. Breathe into your hand just for a moment. Breathe into your hand. 
Is it warm? You, you exist. Okay? We've confirmed that. Why do you exist? You exist for the glory of God. The universe, he goes on to say, and all that, in, that is in it was created for one principal objective, namely to put the glory of God on display as surely as these flowers are on display on the table in front of me. And that's true of you. So you're thinking, how does this all connect to Exodus 38 and 39? The priest, the priesthood and God's worship all go together. Let me give you a thought, and I think for some of you this might be new, maybe not for others. But the Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein said this, priesthood is man's primary office. Let me say that again. Priesthood is man's primary office. It was with the priestly experience of beholding the glory of the creator in his Edenic sanctuary that human existence began. And it was there in that first temple, that first tabernacle, Eden, that man on probation was set to defend against this satanly devilish intrusion that then the whole story of Scripture goes from that focus to the fullness of of the whole world being full of the glory of God and the nations coming to faith in Jesus Christ and knowing him. So it makes more sense then when Peter writes in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to be on the end of a couple of questions now. I'd like to ask you one question that's multiform. Why are you here this morning in our corporate worship? Why? Was it to get something? Was it to get a, like a spiritual fix, like you're, you just got plugged in, so you get filled up, you came empty, you want to leave full? Maybe kids, maybe because mom and dad made you come, you're like, I came because I didn't have a choice. <laughs> Perhaps it's culturally expected that this is what fine, moral, upstanding people do. Well, allow me to raise your vision, your sight for why you came. Something better, higher. Here's the thing. God made, he designed you and me so that the single most significant thing we can do happens to be the most satisfying place we can be. Let me repeat that. The single most significant thing we can do happens to be the most satisfying place we can be. Adoring him, just like the song we just finished singing. Adoring him together as a consecrated community of priests. Remember Peter's words, a royal priesthood through Jesus Christ so that God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit might be all in all, Ephesians 
3, known to all, exalted before all, filling all, all beholding his glory, men and women and children and people from every tribe and language and people and nation who've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the worthy lamb of God. So let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Would you join a throng, a countless multitude to bow down and worship God in the lamb to know him and to behold him and to prize him and to adore him with fellow, fellow worshipers by your sides whose jaws are dropped who just simply cannot stop staring at the beauty of their heavenly king. It's hard to believe that just a few weeks ago that five men gave half a million dollars each to go 4,300 meters down into utter darkness to have a look at the Titanic. They gave all that simply to see a graveyard in the sea, and they perished. Just to look at it. What are you beholding? What's captured the imagination and the affections of your heart this morning? I hope it's Christ. So follow along with me. Don't sleep on the title of our message, Finishing the Place and Pattern for Worship. It's our next to last message in the book. We began this series in December of 2021. Many of you know that the very title of the book, the word Exodus, relates to the idea of departure. You could say Exodus equals departure. And you know the structure of the book. It's not complicated. You might say the first 19 chapters before Sinai, the next 21 after Sinai, But perhaps look at it this way. Broadly, if I can paint the outline of the book in just three strokes, in the first 12 chapters, Yahweh, that is Lord, in capital letters, he redeems and he rescues his people out from 400 years of miserable slavery and bondage, out from under an alien power, Pharaoh, in an alien land, Egypt. God was to have been their Lord. Canaan was to have been their land. They were way west of where they needed to be. And it was Pharaoh in Egypt that stood in the way of Israel, making it to Canaan in fulfillment of the program of promises that the Lord had made to Abraham in Genesis 12. From chapter 12 to chapter 19, redeemed Israel is wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, free from Egypt, but not yet to the promised land. Bound for it, but not yet at the gate. In all of this, whether it's bondage and slavery, the first 12 chapters in Egypt, the next seven, the wilderness wandering, and then finally, right, uh, then you've got the whole what we're going to see in the remaining 21 chapters in a moment, God dealing in covenant with his people, all giving this as a picture even for the Christian life. That's very helpful that we don't fully understand apart from the whole canon of Scripture. You can call chapters 1 through 19 pre-Sinai, chapter 19 to 40 post-Sinai, 
post-Sinai. And in chapter 19, beginning there, we see Yahweh bring Israel to Mount Sinai into this new period of establishing formally a covenantal arrangement or relationship with him as his people. And we've noted, if someone says, what is the prologue to the 10 words there? It's this, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, chapter 20 and verse 1. Within those 10 words, written by God's finger on two tablets of stone, God circumscribes fully, summarizes the obedience that the Lord commands from his people. It's his moral law, what God requires of man. But taking the scriptures as a whole, we know that the law was not given as a means or a system of justification Because in another place in Galatians 2, Paul says this, and he says it with muscle. He's not apologetic. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right? This is how you're to live, but life does not come by works of the law, but through faith, all right? And then from chapter 25 in the book of Exodus on to the end of the book, there's this focus by Yahweh to provide instructions for the building of a special place, the tabernacle, for his worship and his presence. And kids, let me remind you, I think you're well taught in this, but this is so important that we remember You, when you're born, don't make the decision to be a worshiper. It's like when you are born, you're born with a sinful nature. And connected to that is that by nature, you worship. No one ever needs to send you an email or a text or write you a note or tutor you to worship. You naturally do it. It's the inclination of your heart. And the whole point of the whole of Scripture is that God is wanting to bring us to be this whole company of white-robed worshipers of the Son of God. And so you don't want to miss then, as you go from 25 to 40, the significance in chapter 25, verse 9, these words, because it kicks everything off. He says, and let them, this is, The Lord speaking to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And through all this, Yahweh employs the prophet servant Moses to bring his word, if you will, down to his people and lead his people to the promised place of peace and rest in Canaan to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. So now... Look at verse, or take Exodus 38 and 39. And if you're taking notes or making notes, right, it's very simple. There's the furnishings of the court, chapter 38, 1 through 8. 
There's the fabrication of the court. So the court is everything outside of what we can call the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Before this was constructed, and you read of Moses going to the tent of meeting, and the cloud coming down on that, that's fine to say tent of meeting. There, between tabernacle and tent of meeting, and then even the word sanctuary, let's be honest, it gets confusing exactly what Moses here in the writing is referring to. But for the moment, the court is everything that's within the hangings, but outside of the tent of meeting uh, with the roof structure over it. But there's simply two furnishings, the bronze altar and the bronze basin. Then there's the fabrication of the court in verses 9 through 20. And then in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, there's the accounting of the tabernacle materials. Then finally, we'll see two more sections, what I call the fabrication of the holy garments, chapter 39, verses 1 through 30, and then the summary of the completed work, chapter 39, verses 41 through 43. Only two furnishings in the court outside the tabernacle. We've actually already talked about, right, from last week, it's very simple, going inside out, if you weren't here last week, Everything begins in the most holy place with the ark, the ark of the covenant or ark of the testimony that's topped by the mercy seat with the cherubim on top of it. That's inside the most holy place. We discover from Hebrews chapter 9 that in fact the altar of incense is within that on the west side of the veil, all right? But it's the table, the table of the, with the bread and the lampstand that's outside that veil on the east side of the veil within what we call the roof-covered tabernacle. Ten of meeting is fine, okay? And you'll notice, kids, just for a moment, that this altar which has more description on it in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, this is big. This is like seven and a half feet this way, seven and a half this way, like this tall, and it's got a bronze grate. It's like where you could, you could put lots of offering, lots of animal body parts down in it to burn it, all right? The basin, which was to hold water on the stand, is made entirely of bronze, but the altar of burnt offering, which we'll see next week, is actually then initially used, and it's kind of inaugurated with a burnt offering and grain offering in chapter 40, verse 29. Chapter 40, verse 29. This bronze altar for burnt offerings is largely acacia wood that's clad in bronze. Think about why that would be the case because otherwise it would have been incredibly heavy. Notice that the bronze altar was for offerings or worship. And I think I want to encourage you to think about as we conclude this book 
to be looking for the idea of adoration, look for the theme of consecration, look for the picture of access to God and how you'll see that in our remaining time. And so here with these two furnishings, the bronze altar, which was here, and then the bronze basin was between the bronze altar, this big, big altar, you might see it, and the bronze basin is between the bronze altar and the entrance on the east side of the tabernacle or tent of meeting. And so there's offerings. That's why you read there in chapter 40, verse 29, the altar he set that Moses, and we'll see this next week, he set it there at the entrance. And it was Moses there, right? He offered on it initially the burnt offering and the grain offering. But it's there, this idea too of cleansing that before any person, before the Levitical priests would enter, the priests would enter the tabernacle, they would wash their hands. They we look at chapter 30 with me for a moment, verses 17 through 21. We're thinking of the bronze basin that held water. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. A picture of the only thing that can truly wash us clean, and that's the blood of the Lord Jesus. Even Isaiah, in the very first chapter of his book, says something like this. He says, Come now, verse 18, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, friends, listen. Stop trying to reform yourself. Plunge yourself. Plunge yourself and say, Lord Jesus, wash me and I will be clean. Even tonight, as you anticipate that in five hours we're going to come back again and we're going to remember the Lord's death, we're going to proclaim it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, do not do that in an unworthy manner. Remember from the book of Zechariah, that fountain that was open for sin and uncleanness. Look at the fabrication of the court then in verses 9 through 20. You see the size, 100 cubits by 50. It's like 150 feet by 75 feet. Basically, it was about 50% bigger, the court, than our own sanctuary. You see the spacing of the pillars, five cubits apart. Look at the materials for the court. And I want you to imagine this for the moment. 
150 feet or 100 cubits east to west, 50 cubits or 75 feet north to south, and of pure white fine twined linens, starting on the east side, that first 15 feet or 15 cubits right there, or 10 cubits. A distance, and then coming around the south side, going around the west, and then on the north, and returning to where then there was a screened entrance on the east side, the only way facing east into the court. All this, seven and a half feet tall. Imagine, seven and a half feet supported every five, every five cubits, the same distance but pure white, finely twined linen. Three sides and then returning. Foreshadowing our Lord Jesus, who is holy and spotless, who we read in Hebrews 7, was holy, innocent, and undefiled. But to the east unmistakable to a person drawing near. Unforgettable, unmistakable to the eye to draw all worshipers to it was the entrance. And you see that there in verse 18. The screen for the gate of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Twenty cubits, yes, and five cubits high. Look at the fabrics, the yarns, blue to symbolize deity, God himself, purple royalty. God, Yahweh is the God above all gods and King of kings and Lord of lords, scarlet, the red of blood sacrifice. And why did that entrance or gate face East. You ever think about that? Why did the entrance there in Exodus 38, 8 of the screen to the court face? He, Jack Zavada writes this. He said, going west, that is from the east, symbolizes moving toward God. Going east symbolizes going away from God. The gate on the Garden of Eden was on the east side from which Adam and Eve were expelled. Genesis 3.24, Cain went away from God to the land of Nod, east of Eden, Genesis 4.16. Lot split from Abraham, he went east and landed in the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 13.11. But in contrast, the holy of holies, or the most holy place, the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle was on the west end of the courtyard. Briefly, I want you to consider the materials for the tabernacle. You see the particular craftsmen who we saw last week and the previous weeks were men filled with skill and intelligence by the Spirit of God and they are, they're featured there, Bezalel and Aholiab, these two men from two different tribes. But I want you to notice 
that just between the gold, the silver, between the gold, the silver, and the bronze is over 10,000 pounds of precious metals. And kids, you might be surprised by this, but the value of that gold there, no doubt many of which they brought from Egypt, much of which they brought from Egypt when they plundered the Egyptians on their way out of town, in today's dollars would be $69 million worth of gold. All right. Some 2,200 pounds. The silver, some 7,500 pounds would be worth 3 million. And the bronze there, all that together, over five tons of precious metals. And you'll notice that it appeared that they took records of who gave. All right? Or at least who was a census, who was there at that time. Imagine the 603,000 men, and so with women and children, no doubt several million people. And they gave, God had moved their hearts. It's important to remember this, that God had done that. They gave so much, chapter 36, that Moses had to give the command to them Hey, let no man, this is chapter 36 and verse 6, stop it basically. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. And so all these materials were brought together. They were fabricated, of course, the end of that we'll see there at the end of chapter 39. They were brought together, tons of material, and for some 500 years, all right, until early in the 10th century B.C. during the reign of Solomon when the temple was built under his direction, this tabernacle was carted around till it eventually, you know, came to a close. Now, I want to spend just a couple minutes. It's 12, and so I'd want to wrap this up because I wanted to overlap this with next week. But I want you to look for a moment. Uh, We're going to close with a focus on chapter 39, those first 31 verses. And I want to see if you've noticed the alignment, right, between the words holy place in the middle of verse 1. All right, here's this final thing, the final bit of work is to make the priestly garments. And there's great detail for this back, to, back in chapter 28, verses 1 through 43. But here you have the holy place. The, the priests, Aaron, the priests, his sons, were not to go, not simply without garments, but with appropriate garments. It makes place... It makes sense then why Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, guard your steps as you, go, as you go to the house of God. But I want you to note the alignment. The holy place, the holy garments right below that, and then finally, look in verse 30. A holy crown of pure gold, and then this inscription 
which was either on the holy crown or was a plated portion suitable for engraving on the crown that would then be tied to the turban most conspicuous about the high priest. For the holy place, garbed in holy garments, bearing a holy crown with these words, holy to the Lord. And in the interest of time, what I'd like you to do is turn to Hebrews 7. Pastor Jamie tonight will be in Hebrews 9, 1 through 15. And the fact that providentially, though we did not precisely coordinate this, he'll be speaking of this earthly place of holiness as we're finishing the place and pattern for worship. And it speaks of an earthly place of holiness, and he says it's called a tent or tabernacle. Same thing in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 21. He'll take us to that, and you'll see the first section and the second section. But for the moment, I want us to land as we think of Exodus 29, or Exodus 39, and the alignment of a holy place in holy garments, in a holy crown, in this description. These words connected to Aaron as the, as, as the high priest coming not simply from the outside, not simply from the east, through the screen, into the court, there at the, the, the bronze altar and the bronze basin, but there to this beautiful, beautifully decorated with those same blue, purple, scarlet, embroidered yarns, but with more to it there, to enter points to our Lord Jesus. All right? And Pastor Jamie's been preaching, so we've seen this about that Every high priest among the tribe of Levi in the sacrificial system points to that one high priest. So that as John Stott says, the hapax or once for all, the word for once for all, and the malon, the, malon, the word for more, are joined here for us. You have a high priest. And at the end of Hebrews 7, here is great news, what you have. You know, sometimes your language is infected with what you don't have in the problems of your life. And rather than saying we have such a high priest, you would think that you're spiritually impoverished, but no, by God, through Jesus Christ, this is what you have, brothers and sisters. Are you in Christ? This is what you have. If you're outside of Christ this morning, this is 
who you may have. The writer says, we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, there it is, hapags, when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who was made perfect forever. And that is why later, later in the book, in chapter 10, you have the words of once for all that are contrasted with the expression, all the more. Do you see in chapter 10 and verse 25? All the more. That's the word malon that John Stott says, our response to the once for all appearance and sacrifice of sins by our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, is paralleled with and corresponds to the all the more daily living where today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, we join the throng of worshipers who are not so much interested in getting, but in giving spiritual sacrifices that looks like hands lifted up, hearts devoted to the goodness the glory, the greatness of God in Christ. More on this next week. But behold, your great high priest who went into the most holy place for sinners like you and me. He is accepted because on his head is engraved holy to the Lord.